I want to invite you to take your Bible this morning, make your way to the book of Ephesians, chapter number 6, Ephesians, chapter number 6, and uh, we're going to be looking at verse 10 down through verse number 13, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10 uh, down through verse number 13, and uh, the title of the message is really a statement for all of us to recognize, and it is, Christian, we are at war. We are at war, and I'm going to explain that, and I hope that we see the reality of this as we come through this text, and probably we can perceive it even in our own lives. We see it in our culture. We see it in, uh, in the realm of the church. And so I want to read this text and uh, begin into this passage and pray that it would uh, feed our souls and encourage us and strengthen us in our Christian walk. <clears throat> Notice that the Apostle Paul writes and says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. We think about warfare. Warfare is a reality of life under the sun. War has been an ongoing thing throughout history. It's when two opposing sides are at battle with another. We see this in the very beginning. Even with the uh, very first two men ever born into the world, there was a conflict, a contention. Cain rose up and did what? He killed his brother Abel conflict in the very first two people born into this world. But beyond just individual battles between people, there are also wars waged between kingdoms and nations and rulers. Nations today build up their national defense, their technological advances and weaponry and the numbers of people that serve in their armed forces. Armies are built up for the purpose of the reality of war. Uh, sometimes people willingly give themselves to serve. Sometimes there's a draft that summons people to serve. But beyond just the physical wars that we see in history, there is a greater war that's been ongoing for thousands of years, even since right after the creation event. This war I'm talking about is not a physical war, but it is a spiritual war. This war is not limited to one people or nation, but is a war that encompasses the entirety of the world. It is a war that impacts every person on earth. It is a war that has caused greater casualties than any other physical war ever in the history of the world. This war has destroyed countless numbers of souls. You see, this war is what Paul is bringing to the attention of the Ephesians in our text. Now, why does Paul bring this to their attention, especially at the end of the book? Well, reality is this, is that every Christian is automatically drafted into this warfare the moment that they are saved by the grace of Christ. Whether you realize it or not, Christian, you're engaged in spiritual warfare. You are a soldier of King Jesus. 
You can't escape it. It's part of the reality of this world. It's part of the reality of the Christian life. And I think it is fitting that Paul brings this up at the end of the book in light of all that Paul has written through Ephesians. This really is the bookend of application to the Christian to go out and live based on the knowledge that Paul has given. Paul has described to us the glory of our redemption accomplished by the triune God in chapter 1. He's made known the mystery of the gospel and how He has saved us. He has shown us the power and authority of the exalted Lord Jesus Christ. He reveals to us the commission of the church and the growth of the church. He shows us really the essential priority of living out the gospel in every area of life. You see, what Paul brings to their attention in the first century, God brings to our attention today in the 21st century. The truths we're reading and studying through Ephesians, they are timeless truths. They don't expire. They're just as powerful today as they were when Paul first penned them down under the influence of the Holy Spirit of God. And so this warfare we're looking at, understand today that it is a reality that we must recognize, but we also need to recognize not just the reality of this warfare, but also our role in this warfare, because Christian, you do have a role. So what is Paul's focus for them in this immediate text? If you'll notice in our notes here this morning, broken it down to three points, I want to bring this to your attention. Notice firstly, the exhortation to equip for combat. The exhortation to equip for combat. Now, any soldier that is going to be involved in warfare and go into combat, they'd better be equipped for that. They better be ready for that, right? And so there's two aspects here I want to point out to you regarding this. I want you to see firstly that there is power or strength needed for this fight. There is power needed for this fight. And that's what he points out to us there in verse 10. After concluding his instructions for the Christian home and the husband and the wife and parents and and, and masters and slaves and or really the workforce, if you want to put it in modern day uh, application, we notice in verse 10 that Paul says, finally. What does finally mean? means he's almost done. <laughs> means he's almost done. Now, how many of you, honestly, you get a sigh of relief when the preacher says, finally, towards the end of a message? Or maybe, lastly, you get a sigh of relief until he re- you realize that he's actually got one or two or three more points when he said he was on his last one, right? That's why I give you an outline so you know I'm not lying to you, where we're, we're, I can legitimately say, finally. But Paul, understand, though he gives this exhortation at the end of the book, it is certainly not least in importance in the book. I don't think we could put a barometer of of this is greater than this. There are certain doctrines that are weightier than others, but this is so vital to the Christian life, and it's vital for the Ephesians as they live out their Christian life in a very dark and wicked culture. Spiritual warfare uh, was showing itself greatly in Ephesus in that day and time. Now, do you not realize today that spiritual warfare shows itself greatly right now in our own day and time? With that in mind, Paul says in verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Now, 
Paul's already expressed his desire. He wants them to be strengthened in the Lord. Ephesians 3.16, in that exhortation, and he instructed that he wants them, that he wrote to them that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Strength is what he desires for the Ephesians. He wants them to be strong Christians, not weak or cowardly Christians, but strong, bold, courageous Christians that dwell in the midst of a very dark culture and society. And truly, this indeed is the great need for Christians in every generation, in our own generation. We are called in this text and a multitude of other texts to be strong in the Lord, be courageous in the Lord. Now, as we look briefly at this verse, we see a couple things that Paul says in here. He firstly says, be strong in the Lord. Now, understand that this is a command. It's his desire, but it's also a command to us. For us to be strong in the Lord, there's a couple of things we have to recognize. The first one is this. We must recognize that we need a strength that we don't possess in ourselves. If you're going to be strong in the Lord, you have to first recognize that you lack the strength that you need here. And here's the great danger of pride and self-dependence. In our Christian life, if we think with a I got this kind of mentality, you are rushing headlong with blindfolders on towards a cliff. Pride always brings destruction. Pride always brings a person low. You understand that we do not have the strength for this spiritual warfare in our own flesh. Example after example shows us this in the Scriptures. You remember, I'm going to use a man we're all familiar with, and he, he gets picked on quite a bit. His name is Peter. We know him, right? You remember the confidence of Peter when Jesus warned that he was going to be betrayed and Peter would deny him and everybody's going to flee and Peter said to the Lord, though, all, though, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Never. You know what never means, right? It means never. I'll never fall away. That's Peter's pride and self-reliance that, oh, I got this with you, Lord. I'll go to the grave with you. What happened to old Peter? Well, we read just a little later in the narrative that when the pressure was turned up against Jesus and he's been taken captive and they're asking him, asking Peter, hey, weren't you with Jesus? Don't you know Jesus? Peter denied that he even knew the Lord three times. Peter had confidence in his own self and his pride brought him to a great fall when the pressure increased. And so we have to recognize our need of strength today. Matthew Henry rightly comments here and says, We have no sufficient strength of our own. Our natural courage is as perfect cowardice, and our natural strength as perfect weakness. But all our sufficiency is of God. Which brings me to this second aspect relating to this strength that we need in the Lord. Not only should we recognize that we need a strength we don't have. We need to recognize the right source of our strength. 
What is the right source of our strength, church? It is Christ. It is the Lord. You'll notice Paul says plainly, be strong, how? In the Lord. You see, the Lord alone is the source of strength that we need for every aspect of life. It is only the Lord who has the power to be able to give us victory and give us the strength that we need to live in this warfare victoriously on a day-to-day basis. We recall what Jesus said to His disciples, and this is quite humbling for us to realize this. John 15, 5, He said to them, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in Me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from Me, you can do some things. Just make sure you're awake. It's awful quiet in here this morning. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. What does that that include? It means nothing. What can I do outside of Christ? I can't do anything for Christ. And how greatly understand that we need the strength of the Lord. And if you as a Christian understand, if you're not abiding in Christ, you're continuing in communion and fellowship with Him, without a doubt, you will weaken yourself day by day in this spiritual battle. You know, my grandmother used to write in my, she wrote in one of my Bibles, seven days without God's Word makes one week. And she also said seven days without prayer makes one week. Well, she's not talking about the Monday through, Sunday through Saturday. W-E-A-K, it makes you weak, spiritually weak, right? And that is true as we see through this text, the emphasis of the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and the emphasis of prayer here at the end. And so what you find with this is that appropriation or applying this strength comes through the means of grace we have in the Scriptures. Prayer, knowledge of and obedience to the Word of God, faith in the promises of God. You must see the importance of the strength of the Lord in your life. Because it is His strength that enables us to live as we ought to live. Not the strength of our flesh. You know, Paul says to be strong in the Lord. And he concludes the last statement of this sentence. And in the strength of His might. That builds upon what he just said. But maybe gives a little bit more of an angle here. Showing us that it is the Lord's strength that works in us. And through us in this battle. You see, the strength of His might works in us by His grace. It is not because of us. It is God that works in us both to will and do of His good pleasure. It is not merely that we just live and exist in this warfare, but the point here is that Christ lives in us as we're in this warfare. And the strength we exhibit... The courage, the boldness, the ability, it flows from Him and not our own selves. And this is what many Christians need to understand to live courageous and strong in the midst of this warfare. It's that all that we are and all that we can do is indeed by grace alone. You know, Timothy was a young pastor who seemed to struggle with being timid and fearful. And Paul encourages him this way. He told him in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy that God's not given us the spirit of fear, but of courage and of boldness and sound mind. But here he says and tells him again in 2 Timothy 2.1, he says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. By the grace that is in Christ Jesus. 
You see, Paul wanted Timothy to be strong and to know that this strength was of the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And Christian, here's the reality. Since the Lord lives in us and strengthens us by grace, what need do we have to be fearful or timid of anything? If God be for us, what? Who can dig in? You see, because of the Lord's strength, Each and every Christian should be courageous in this battle. John Calvin rightly comments here, he says, If the Lord aids us by His mighty power, we have no reason to shrink from the combat. So we must see the power we need and know the power we have in the Lord Jesus. But notice with me letter B this morning, not only do we see there is power that we need to be equipped, that's in Christ, but there is also protection needed for this fight. Protection. And that brings us to verse 11. Notice with me verse 11, if you would. He says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, armor is a very common and well-known element of warfare, isn't it? Armor has, you know, varied throughout history. It is advanced through history. I mean... You, warfare in the, back in long time ago, it was done on horses and with uh, you know smaller weapons or less less uh, less advanced weapons. Today we've got armored tanks and helicopters and uh, missiles and all sorts of things, bulletproof vests. But back in Paul's day, he has in mind the armor of the Roman soldier, which at that day and time that was the top of the line. I mean, they're the world power. They're the leading power of the day. And so that's the armor he has in mind. But notice that this is not just some kind of physical armor, Paul's saying. What's Paul call it? He calls it the armor of God. What does that mean? It means that this armor is given by God. It is of Him. It is spiritual in nature. You'll see the application of that in a moment. But if you look at this armor, Ephesians chapter 6, if you read verse 14 through 17, we'll dissect this further in the next message. But you'll notice what he says here, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. You'll notice he adds prayer in there in verse 18. But as you read these pieces of armor, what do you notice about them? They protect vital parts of the body and equip the soldier for combat. Not only do they offer protection, but they also for defense, but Paul includes weaponry for offense. That's part of armoring up. You can't go into battle only prepared to defend without also having an offense. Offense you have to have for victory, right? Imagine entering a a basketball game and the coach telling the team, all right, guys, tonight we're only going to play defense. If you get the ball, give it back to the other team and just defend. Don't dribble, don't shoot, don't pass it. Just You're only going to play defense. Well, that game would never be won, and it would look quite ridiculous, wouldn't it? 
Defense and offense go together. And when it comes to spiritual warfare, both are required for our protection from the assaults of the enemy in this world. Now, what is the purpose of us having the power of the Lord and the protection of this armor? Notice that Paul plainly says here that you may be able to do what? To stand. Paul says you need this power, the strength. You need this protection, the armor, for this purpose, to stand. Stand for what or stand against who? He says against the schemes of the devil. Right here, Paul lays out in the open the plain assaults of the spiritual enemy that are intended to make us fall. Paul calls upon them to put it on to stand in the face of the enemy's attacks. Yet what do we find often today? Many look for other ways or means of getting through the spiritual warfare. Other ways or means of resisting evil, usually in something that they themselves deem good enough. That's not really the scriptural pattern. This was happening in Paul's day, and I want to read a parallel passage in Colossians 2. Colossians 2, verse 18 through 23. Colossians and Ephesians are very similar in their nature and some of the communication that's given. But here we find in Paul's day false teachers who are insisting on extra-religious rules and traditions and things that would make them right with God, things that would help their worship with God, things that would make them overcome evil. Colossians 2, 18-23, Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head. The head is Christ, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teaching. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. See, Paul's calling out these teachers who are teaching them that if you want to really get through this life as a Christian and, and, and be holy and, and really have advancement in the Christian warfare, you need to just do all these regulations, do all these traditional things, do all these physical things. Charles Hodge describes this as the way, of, uh, in this way, seclusion from the world or flight rather than conflict. In other words, let's just isolate from everything and that's what's going to protect us. Ascetic or ritual observances. Invocation of saints and angels, and especially celibacy, voluntary poverty, monistic obedience. These all constitute the panoply, I don't even know if I pronounced that word right, which false religion has substituted for the armor of God. This has been one of the problems throughout church history. Let's do this, and let's add this, and let's make this a requirement. All of this to just keep God's people in line and keep them where they need to be. 
You see, the world around us and the culture and uh, even various religious groups will tell us various ways in which we should combat evil in the world, right? But often what is being said is contrary to the very plain reality and truth that Paul is giving to us here today. We don't need what the world, the culture, or other religions tell us we need to oppose the enemy and to be victorious to fight the good fight. We need what God has ordained for us right here. We need to be truly equipped by what he says. Because what it boils down to is to try other ways to stand against the world, flesh, and the devil. Kind of like when David was pushed to put on Saul's armor to go fight Goliath. Remember how that went down? Put this armor. This is the king's armor. Put this on. David tried it on. It wouldn't fit him. It wasn't ordained to fit him. You see, David facing Goliath went against that giant, not necessarily in physical armor as a normal soldier who would need it, but he went in the spiritual armor of faith and the providence and protection of God Almighty over him. Though that giant towered above him, looked like an impossible enemy to take down, David said to Goliath with boldness and faith in God, this day I'm going to lift your head from your body and your body will be fed to the birds of the air. You understand when God is for us, nobody can be against us. Remember that, Christian. God has plainly laid out before us in this text the armor and the protection that we need. It is spiritual and it is supernatural. Paul put it this way to the Romans. He said, the night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. You see, anytime we do things a different way than what God spells out in Scripture, especially in spiritual battle, it's only going to do spiritual damage. And oftentimes, doing it the opposite way accomplishes the very goal of the enemy. So we need the protection and the power that Paul reveals here. We must be equipped for combat. Notice with me number two this morning. Notice as he's going to dive into the enemy. The enemy in this evil conflict. Look, look, what is, who's the enemy here? Well, he's already made that plain, right? He's the devil. So I want to point out a couple of things about our enemy. What's going on in this spiritual warfare? Our enemy is supernatural. Understand this. This is so vital. Our enemy is supernatural. He's not physical like us. He's already told us in verse 11 that this is the devil who is the chief adversary and leader of the opposing forces. Now, what do we know of the devil? Well, the world has an idea about the devil, doesn't it? They treat the devil like he's some kind of a cartoon figure, some kind of a comic book villain, right? The devil is very much a joke to many people, while many others actively engage in worshiping the devil and engaging in following his ways, pledging their lives to him. Understand this. The devil loves it when people don't recognize him for who he actually is. Oh, he just loves that. He loves when people think, oh, let them think what they think about me as long as it's not true, right? 
What better way to work than under the guise of a false idea of who the enemy is, right? But Scripture reveals much about the devil. He's called by several titles and descriptions, and Scripture tells us many things that he does. Just to give you a brief summary, he's most commonly known as Satan, right? As the head of all demonic forces. He's known as the serpent and dragon who deceives. We read in Revelation 12, 9 a little bit about him. The Bible speaks of him and says the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. What a description there. Jesus calls the devil the ruler of this world, the leader of darkness. Paul calls him the God of this world, little g, who blinds unbelievers. John calls him the evil one. He is the very epitome of evil. Much more could be given from the Scriptures to describe this evil adversary of God and His people. But as a supernatural being, you understand this, Satan is extremely intelligent and very powerful. He is no dummy. A lot of time we like to think, well, you know, he's just... He's not really that smart. He's smarter than you and I are. A lot smarter than we are. He is not to be underestimated. Now, Paul expounds here upon the devil and his forces in this text, and for good reason. What's the good reason here? One of the essential means of victory in warfare is what? Knowing who? Your enemy. Knowing your enemy. Militaries spend... Millions of dollars on technology to be able to spy on the enemy, to keep tabs on what they're doing, what weapons they have, where they store them, how they're testing them. How often do we hear in the news or read in the news, North Korea tested this this missile out in this particular sea in the last few days. How do we know that? We've got eyes on them well as many other people. People, nations keep an eye on their enemy or those who are a threat to them to see what their intentions might be. And here's the wonderful truth for us today, Christian. Lord's not left us in the dark about our enemy. He puts the light on the enemy. And Satan hates that. He likes to abide in the dark with nobody really knowing what he's doing or who he is or how he works, but Scripture reveals to us who he is and what he does. Yeah, you notice this. Paul says in verse 12, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Now, what does that tell us about our enemy? Our enemy is not primarily physical, although the enemy does influence and affect the physical. Our enemy is spiritual in nature. Spiritual. Spiritual forces of darkness that work in and through people. One example today very known in this particular month. This month is known as what? Pride Month in this nation. It is designated to celebrate and propagate the LGBTQ thousand other letters people and their way of life. Now, this push has infiltrated much of our own nation with major companies, jumping on board to support the bandwagon, support this evil way of life. 
We look at the people involved in this and those supporting with it, it with great disgust. Why? Because this lifestyle is an abomination to God. It's an abomination to God. There's nothing okay with it. Not anything okay with it. God hates it. But what is the foundation of this major push for accepting this lifestyle in our culture? Is it the homosexuals or the who hold high the gay pride flag? What is the underlying cause of this push for evil? It is the spiritual forces behind them. See, you and I see the crowds, we see the flags, we see the companies, but behind the scenes, there is a powerful force at work to push this kind of junk. These powerful forces, these enemies we're reading of in our text, they entice the depraved nature of these people with their evil desires, further fueling the conflict with these actions. Now, we are indeed called to wrestle with the enemy. Notice we wrestle. That means to struggle against the enemy. But the enemy we face, understand, it is spiritual in nature that works through the physical. Since they work through the physical, such as through belligerent sinners or godless authorities, this requires us to engage with them in this battle. But not in a physical way. We don't go up, start punching people or... You know, doing doing physical things. How is it that we engage in the battle with this? We engage in this battle with spiritual means. Chiefly the word of God, the gospel, and prayer. You see, these enemies in, in sin, they must be recognized and resisted. But we must recognize that behind the veil, behind their evil words, behind their works and practices behind their evil worldview are sinister, satanic forces work. And Paul touches a little bit on this for us in 2 Corinthians 10. Notice with me, 2 Corinthians 10. Look with me at verse 3 through 6 for a moment. Notice what he says. This ties into our text. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. We live in a physical world, but our warfare is not physical. What else does he say? Verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion Raise against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So what's Paul say here? How is it that we wrestle in this text? We wrestle by divine power, which has the power to destroy strongholds. How does that happen? It happens through the word of God, the gospel, and prayer. You understand that the gospel can save and transform the most vile of sinners, even the homosexual. Even the homosexual. This is what Paul would use to destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Paul knew who the real enemy was. 
You understand, Paul, Paul endured a lot of physical affliction. He was stoned. He was left for dead. He was beaten. Those are, those are physical realities that he's undergoing from a physical person. But behind that is a spiritual enemy driving this agenda. Paul knew the real enemy was behind the scenes of the people working against Christ and his church. John Calvin rightly comments here, and I think he puts it well. He says, our natural disposition would lead us to direct all our exertions against the men themselves. But this foolish desire will be restrained by the consideration that the men who annoy us are nothing more than hearts thrown at the hand, by the hand of Satan. You've got to remember who the real enemy is. What's Paul reveal about these spiritual forces? You look at verse 12 again. He says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but who are we wrestling against? He says, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You know what Paul has done here? He's given us a behind-the-scenes glimpse into the forces of darkness that are working for Satan. He shows us that they are organized, they are structured, and they are powerful. See, Paul's purpose is not to try to explain the details of this demonic hierarchy, but to give us some idea of how sophisticated and powerful they are. You see, these are the diabolical devils that work for the chief devil. They are enforcers of darkness, hard at work against us from the vantage point of the heavenly places. Now, some have debated what is meant by the heavenly places or the high places. I think the most plain explanation is the realm of spiritual beings where they reside, both on earth and even in the skies. No matter where you look, they are in a realm you can't see. I'll touch on that again in a moment. But you understand, church, that this spiritual warfare has been going on from very early in history, very early. You remember the words of God to Satan considering his warfare with humanity and the seed of the woman. God said to Satan in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, that has so much to unpack, I don't have time. But at the core of that, what do you see? There's an enmity between Satan and humanity which would ultimately be climaxed in the true God-man, Jesus Christ. With this enmity, it came to fruition even further in the time of Christ, as Christ uh, was tempted by the devil himself and his trial of the cross. And when it came time for Jesus to die, what did Jesus tell the rulers who were carrying him off or about to take him captive? Luke twenty two fifty three. 53, listen to this. When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour, and what? The power of darkness. The power of darkness was at work in putting the king of light to death. You see, the warfare of this supernatural conflict is undeniable, and it is powerful. But not only is our enemy supernatural, understand this. Letter B, our enemy is strategic. He is strategic. Now, since these spiritual forces are not physical, that means they are unseen in their essence, aren't they? Now, we see the fruit of their work, but we don't actually see them. You and I cannot peer into the unseen realm. 
In fact, if you could see right now into the unseen realm, you'd probably be terrified out of your mind. There are forces at work, good and evil, angelic beings working in this world, probably in this room at this very moment. You just can't see them. They're all over this world. And with this unseen realm, you understand, the thing about Satan and his forces being unseen is that it makes them all the more dangerous. makes them all the more dangerous. An enemy that you can't see is far more dangerous than an enemy that you can see, literally. John MacArthur rightly said this way, our greatest enemy is not in the world we see, corrupt and wicked as it is, but the world we cannot see. And so not only is their invisibility a danger, it gives them an advantage, their craftiness and scheming is how they work, and that is a danger. What did Paul say in verse 11? He said, put on the armor of God. You need the strength of God. Why? To stand against the schemes of the devil. The schemes are the craftiness, the way he works, and subtlety. You understand the devil is way more crafty than you realize. He's been doing this job a long time. He's an expert at deception. He's not a newbie. He's an expert. He's not new on the job. We see it in the beginning with the Garden of Eden. He comes to them in Genesis 3.1. What do we learn about the serpent? He was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. And what's he do through that passage? Go study Genesis 3. What's Satan do? He subtly and craftily words his words and questions so that the woman lets her guard down and gives in, and so does Adam. He causes her to doubt the very validity of the word of God. Then he outright lies and says, no, God did not say this. You're, you're hearing it wrong. He is deceptive, friend. He is subtle. This is the nature of Satan. Now, we see this great deception today in so many ways, and these ways are infiltrating the church and corrupting it from within. Look with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians 11. Look at chapter 11 with me for a moment. And look with me at verse 13 through 15. This ought to help us see some things. Paul's been talking about false teachers, false apostles. And here's what he says in verse 13. For such men are false apostles. Deceitful workmen disguising themselves as the apostles of Christ. Look at verse 14. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as what? An angel of light. Verse 15. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness and will correspond to their deeds. Do you understand that our world and culture right now, especially in America, it is full of these kind of false teachers. Ministers of Satan that stand up in the name of Christ and declare abominable things, damnable heresies. And the thing about deception is that you don't know you're deceived until it's too late. How many thousands and even millions with online streaming tune in to these false teachers? are being led astray only to destruction. Men like Joel Osteen and Andy Stanley and whoever else you want to name. That's their nature, is deception. But not only is it open in, open in false churches, churches that, you know, it's obvious that they're not gospel churches, Satan works hard to infiltrate true churches 
to disrupt and divide them. You understand, I could sense it even this morning, how the, the devil was working to disrupt this service in my own life. He uses every little thing he can do. He knows, hey, it's Sunday. The people of God are going to gather together to worship the king. Let's do everything we can to mess that up. Let's, let's wreak havoc in their life here and there. And, and so by the time they get to church, they're not really worshiping. They're just there. That's what he does, friend. He does everything possible to disrupt the people of God. Not only through, through the worship, but also through, through division and, and, and dis, disruption in this way. Bitterness and, and unforgiveness. Second, Second Corinthians 2, 11, Paul warns in this fashion. He says, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, have you, have, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Now here's what he, what he says. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. You know what he's saying there? Lack of forgiveness is one way the devil works in churches. To divide and conquer. He uses false teaching. He uses these. I could name a thousand things that he uses. I mention these because this is what he uses. And what Paul says, he says, we're not ignorant of his designs. We know how he's working. To disrupt and divide and distort the church of God. Now, sometimes these spiritual forces work in open persecution against the church. Other times, they work patiently in deception towards the church. The enemy is indeed engaged in evil conflict in the world and the church. We have to be aware of it. We have to be aware of it. Number three, and lastly, the enlistment of every Christian. This is where I just want to tie this together because he just repeats what he said in the previous verse. The enlistment of every Christian. We come down to verse 13. I want to point out two quick things for us by way of application. First one is this. Every Christian must put on the armor. Every Christian must put on the armor. You notice he repeats this command. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. You notice that he repeats it, not just as some casual suggestion. Well, you should do this, but if you don't, you'll probably be okay. No, this is an imperative Christian. It's essential for you to take up this armor. Because why is that? Christian, you can't escape the warfare. There's nowhere to run. There is nowhere for you to desert to from this warfare. Because this warfare reaches into every area of your life. Every area. I think it's fitting that Paul brings this warfare to their attention after just having given detailed instructions about marriage and parenting and work and society. How greatly the spiritual assaults happen in the daily realities of life. They happen in the marriage, happen in the home, happen with the children, happen in the workplace, and of course we know they happen in the church, in the ordinary things. I love what Ferguson says here, Sinclair Ferguson. He says, it is the ordinary progress of sanctification that the devil seeks to defeat us. It is in the daily routine that we need to make sure he gains no foothold. 
mundane life, not just mountaintop experience, is the sphere in which Satan appears. Now, it's easy to look at Pride Month and be like, oh, see that? That's the spiritual assault of the enemy. Yes, it is, but guess what? A husband and wife at each other's throats, that's also the assault of the enemy. It comes down to the little things, Christian. And this is why it's so important that you are armored up. You put on this armor because the warfare, it's every day, Christian. You're going to get up and you're going to go to battle. You might have a good day in battle, you might have a bad day in battle, but regardless, every day you're going to battle in one way or another. It affects your attitude, it affects your spirit, it affects your outlook, negativity, positivity, everything. You see, our own flesh is a Trojan horse that Satan seeks to use for his schemes. Once again, Peter gives us a great example. I told you I was going to pick on him. When he thought he could keep Jesus from going to the cross, you remember what Jesus said to him? It's almost staggering that Jesus says this to Peter, his beloved apostle. Matthew 16, 23, he turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, angel. He said, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You understand, Peter in his flesh, he didn't have a clue what he was actually doing by trying to hinder Jesus from going to the cross. It was a satanic working. And Peter knew all too well about the workings of Satan in his life. He wrote later in his own letter, 1 Peter 5, 8, Be sober, be watchful, why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You understand, Christian, that you can't afford to not be ready for battle. You'll get devoured. You'll get devoured. You're in the battle whether you like it or not. You're enlisting the Lord's army. It's a lot better to have your armor on. Be ready for the spiritual battle than to not. Letter B, every Christian not only should put on the armor, every Christian must stand firm with that armor. Stand firm. He says in verse 13, Put on God's armor that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Notice that little word, you. That you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Take that personally, Christian, because Christian warfare, it is personal. Jesus said to Peter again in Luke twenty-two thirty-one, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he may sift you like wheat. Simon wanted Peter. I mean, Satan wanted Peter. Satan wants Joseph. Satan wants you. Put your name there. He'll do whatever he can to have you. We need to be equipped for this warfare daily. James said, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Guess what? It's not a lost cause in the battlefield. I want you to understand this. Even even though I've described how powerful the devil is, how, how deceptive he is, we do not have to live in defeat day by day, nor should we. Why is that? Because you and I in Christ, we're already on victory side. We're already on it. Though the warfare continues between light and darkness through history and day by day, understand that Christ, He's already delivered the death blow to the enemy. With His cross and His resurrection, He defeated Satan fully and finally. Now there's coming a day in in which the future, the consummation, He'll be permanently put out in the lake of fire. But understand, legally, by way of the cross, Satan's already a loser. When you know that you've lost, it makes you pretty mad, doesn't it? I've been in many basketball games where it was, it was pretty much over. 
And I didn't care. I was just going to aggravate the other team. I'm going to do everything I can to get under their skin because I knew I wasn't going to win anyway. May I say Satan is working as hard as he can to disrupt anything and everything God wants to do. Colossians 2.15, listen to what Paul says regarding Christ's redemptive work. He says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. <laughs> you see, we're, we're called to fight the fight of faith knowing that King Jesus, the omnipotent sovereign, has already guaranteed the victory of his kingdom. And as his soldiers, as his representatives, you and I are called to put on the armor, stand firm, engage in this warfare, pushing back the darkness with the power of the light. We stand firm because of who Christ is and who we are in Christ. We stand firm because the kingdom of darkness loses in the end. And here's the wonderful reality. Every soul that's transferred into the kingdom of light by the power of the gospel, the kingdom of darkness has just lost a little bit of territory. Colossians 1, 13-14. Paul says to them, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, at the core of all of this warfare, the victory is found in the gospel of Christ. That is why we preach the gospel. It doesn't matter how much we're hated for the gospel's sake. Those who hate the gospel can one day come to love the gospel because the gospel can transform the hardest of hearts. You don't believe me? Read about the Apostle Paul on his way to kill Christians, on his way to persecute Christians, and God in his sovereign grace struck him down, opened his eyes, and realized how much of a fool he had been for hating Christ. He knew the gospel of Christ was the truth and became a mighty weapon for the kingdom of God. Christian, understand this today. You're at war. You're at war. Do you live your life in light of this supernatural conflict? How are you doing day by day in this conflict? I can tell you, when I take my eyes off the conflict, it's easy to mess up. It's easy to let the flesh have its way. We have to pay attention. We must recognize the war that we're in and be equipped with the armor of God and stand firm in the Lord's strength. And today, if you do not truly know Christ, you understand you at this present moment are on the enemy's side because there is no such thing as neutrality. There is no in-between Christ and not with Christ. You're either with Him or you're against Him. And if you don't truly know Him in your heart, you are at odds with Him. I call on you to repent of your sin and trust in Christ alone. He's the Savior, He's the Lord, He's the King, and He will save any and all who trust in Him. You must trust in Him. Join the victory side. If you feel Him calling you, if you feel Him convicting you of that, don't, don't disregard that. God works by His Spirit to awaken your dead soul to your true identity. Turn to Christ this morning. Let's stand as we pray. Father, we bow before You this morning and thank You for this day. Thank You, Father, for this text of Scripture and what it reveals to us. I'm thankful.